Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I did a lot of dumb stuff when I was in college. Uh, Not the dumb stuff that some of you did, but a different type of dumb stuff. So I went to a small Christian college in Tennessee, and so I spent my Friday and Saturday nights reading my Bible. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. But we were in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, and we do what any person would do in the middle of the country in Tennessee, and we try to blow things up. Uh, we tried to cause chaos. That's just, you know, a thousand kids there in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's kind of how we spent our weekends. And most of the time, most of the things that we did were centered around pranks. So our college had a long-standing tradition of pranks that student had pulled through the years. In fact, it's actually one of the selling points for the college. And so when they're taking you on that tour and they're trying to convince you to go, they'd walk you past the chapel and they'd say, hey, this is the chapel. Every Thursday, you, you, you know, you'll do worship in here. One time, they'll go into this story about how students actually took a tennis ball launcher and hit it in a baptistry. And in the middle of a worship service, they started clicking the button and shooting tennis balls into the crowd. Then they'll walk you down uh, by the student union building and they'll say, hey, this is the place where you'll go for coffee or you can eat lunch here or you can study here. It's also the place where there was a buffalo head because we were the buffalo and it was a tax there. I mean, someone broke in and stole it and they would drive it all over the United States and send back like threatening letters to the school, like with cut out letters from magazines and stuff, like ransoms essentially. And so they're like, this is where that happened. Or they'd bring you to the boys' dorm. They'd say, hey, this is the boys' dorm. It's really smelly. There was no air conditioning. It was awful. And so they'd say, hey, like this is the boys' dorm. You know, a few years ago, guys bought tarps and they sewed them together and they took a bunch of soap and they made a giant slip and slide down the hallway. And so it was kind of like the selling point to tell you, hey, you should come to this school so you can cause chaos. And so that's what we would do when we got bored. During my freshman year, uh, we tricked a guy into narrowing off his own eyebrows. That's a story for a different time. It's on YouTube. It's really sad. Um, We cinder blocked a guy into his room, but the dumbest thing that we ever did came at the end of our freshman year. So we had just found out it was this thing called Wonderful Wednesday. Again, you guys are wondering, what school did he go to? I get it. It's fine. So this is a surprise day off every spring semester where they bring in games and, like, food. And essentially they tell you, hey, it's, a, it's free for all. Go do whatever you want today. You don't have to go to class. But the problem my freshman year is they actually told us on Tuesday night that wonderful Wednesday was the next day. They told us the night before, hey, you're not going to have class tomorrow. And so we did what most freshmen would do, and we completely lost our minds. That night, we were up in the gym, it was around 11 o'clock, and we were playing basketball, and security came, and they said, hey, it's, it's time for you to leave, and we tried to convince them, hey, we don't have class tomorrow, let us stick around, and we ended up getting into a little bit of an altercation with the security guard, and so we decided that even though he was kicking us out, we were going to figure out a way to get back in. So we convinced our friend Josh, who was kind of a ninja, uh, to climb up and hide in the bleachers. And again, small school, so those bleachers that push up against the wall, and actually slid in between kind of the boxes that they create as they, they push against the wall. And so Josh hid there, security went and did his rounds, and he checked all of his spots, and eventually he left, turned off all the lights, and, and, and the security guard went to his next post, and Josh climbed out of the bleachers and went out and unlocked the door. He walked back to our dorm, and he grabbed us, and we grabbed a bunch of people, and we went back to uh, the gym so that we could go and break into the pool and have a midnight swim. And so there's no lights, it's just kind of the red from the emergency exit signs. And it was fun, it was a great time, it was, you know, probably as far as we should have gone, but we decided to take it a little bit further. And so we're sitting there, we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? Because swimming isn't enough. And someone says, we should dye the pool red. And so we did what any person in Tennessee would do, and we went to Walmart. 
And as we walked through the aisles, we looked at food coloring. We thought, Ken, would food coloring work? It's an Olympic-sized swimming pool. We figured it wouldn't. Then we went and looked at hair dye. We're like, maybe hair dye would work, but we thought that would be, probably be a little bit too concentrated. And eventually, we found ourselves in an aisle where all the Kool-Aid was, and we thought we were brilliant. So we went out, we bought $100 in Kool-Aid and brought it back to the pool so that we could dye it red. It was 40 of those containers. So we had 10 of us, we're dumping them in the pool, we're walking them around. We actually had a guy in a kayak in the middle, like stirring it up with his arms. It was, <laughs> we're freshmen, we didn't know what we were doing. By the time we left the pool, it was red and the smell of fruit punch was very, very strong. So the next morning, again, like being a school where pranks happen, there's a big culture of it. The next morning, word quickly spread that someone had dyed the pool red. And for the next few days, it was all that anybody would ever talk about. And it was fun as the story started to progress. Like people started making up stories that like we broke into the science building and like created a concoction of dye. We're, we're not that smart. There were stories that we took a cinder block and threw it through a door in order to break in. There were even stories, and this is the weirdest one, there's a secret society on campus called Deep Six who did it, which isn't a thing. We, there was like 800 kids there. It wasn't real. But the, all these stories are going around and people are trying to figure out who did it. And, and to be honest, like we thought we, thought we were awesome until it wasn't awesome anymore. The thing that we didn't think about when dyeing the pool red with Kool-Aid was that Kool-Aid is full of sugar. And sugar, when cycled through a pool filter, starts to gum up the motor. And when you gum up a motor in a pool filter, it starts to slow down. And the pool eventually gets disgusting. And what they have to do is they have to do uh, this thing where they have to flush the whole pool. So they're trying to drain it all and shift it back through. And they kept putting more and more pressure on this motor. And eventually when you put too much pressure on a motor and a filter, it causes it to explode. And our school used this thing called sand filters, which if you don't know a lot about it, the, the easiest explanation is they use sand to filter everything out. And when a sand filter explodes in a pool, what it does is it covers the entire bottom of the pool with sand. They had to shut down the pool. They had to drain it completely. They had to get somebody to come in. They had to resurface the entire pool. It was so funny. <laughs> My parents were not happy about this. As a simple prank became a major disaster, the campus started to actively try to figure out who did it. And because of our past issues, because of the past transgressions we had at the school, me and three of my friends, including CT, who preaches here every once in a while, and you met him outside probably, uh, we were all called into the dean's office because he knew we did it. And so we did what normal Christian boys would do, and we lied. <laughs> we told them that it wasn't us, but he clearly knew. He just knew it was us. And so he told us, you have 24 hours to think about it, and then we're going to meet again. So after spending the night trying to figure out how to get out of trouble, me trying to convince my friends to keep lying, sorry, <laughs> we decided to, get, to grab the 10 of us and head to the dean and turn ourselves in. One of those people was my wife, by the way. They ended up fining us $2,000, uh, and for some of us it was our second strike, and for some people it's just one written note. So the moral of the story is don't dye a pool with Kool-Aid. So you can't say you didn't learn anything today at Collective. Do you know what's crazy, though, about this whole thing exploding? An Olympic-sized swimming pool has 660,000 gallons of water. One container of Kool-Aid is 19 ounces of sugar and dye and all those chemical things that we really love. And so we had 40 containers, which is 760 ounces of Kool-Aid powder in 660,000 gallons of water. That's one ounce of Kool-Aid mix for every 868 gallons of water. It was such a small amount that you couldn't even taste it, but it was enough to make an impact. Most of the time, we don't think that something that small can make such a big impact. We struggle to believe that one person can change the world. We struggle to believe that one vo voice is loud enough to be heard. 
We struggle to believe that one idea can save lives, but small things can have big impacts. Margaret Mead once said, a small group of thoughtful people could change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. A few months ago, I was at a church planners meeting, and we were discussing the beginning of the church. Like, where did the church come from? And the guy that was leading it asked a room full of 45 pastors, which it's not as fun as it sounds, I promise. But he asked this group of pastors, like, who was the first church planner? How did the church first begin? And we all sat there staring at him because we thought it was a trick question. Eventually, one of the guys, like, kind of slowly raises his arm, and he says, okay, like, what do you think? And he's like, Jesus? And we all laugh because, of course, that's a cliche answer. That's what we tell the kids in Collective Kids. Hey, if you don't know, just say Jesus. But he was right. The church didn't start when a group of people got into a room and created bylaws. That's not how the church began. The church started when Jesus died and rose from the dead and came to his followers in a place called the Upper Room. When that happened, do you know how many people were there? There were 120 people in that room. That's about as many adults that are in this place right now. There's about 120 of you guys in this room. And the church began when 120 people decided that salvation and hope and peace was so good that they had to bring it to the end of the world. Right now, currently, there are 2.2 billion people who would say that they follow Jesus. And so that's one-third of the world. 120 people to 2.2 billion. What if those 120 people thought what they saw didn't matter? What if those people thought that no one would actually believe them? What if those people decided to keep the resurrection of Jesus to themselves? They thought, you know what, this is just for us, 120. We're going we're gonna to love this for a really long time, but we're not going to share this with anybody else. What if those people thought they were too small of a group or had too soft of a voice or were too marginalized to share Jesus with the people around them? And the obvious answer is that we wouldn't be here today. And I know that I can only speak for myself when I say this, but I know my life would be completely different if that group decided to keep that to themselves. But that small group of people made a big impact. And even though we know that's true, even though like, we see that, and even though we feel that, we, we still struggle. Many of you aren't sure that you can make an impact for the kingdom of God. You still aren't sure that you can make an impact in a church. You don't think that giving financially will make an impact because you don't think the number is high enough. You don't think that serving will make an impact because you're just one person. Or you don't think actually inviting people and encouraging people and challenging people to experience hope will even matter because your circle is too small. But what we know is that small things can make big impacts. And the church, this church, and the church that's been around for thousands of years is proof of that. Today we're continuing our Hope Rising series because we can all use a little hope. And so we've been reading about Jesus' last few days on earth, according to John, who is one of the people closest to Jesus, and he wrote a book called John. And Jesus knows that his death is coming, and that's kind of the context of the story that we're in. And he knows that this is going to devastate his followers. Because even though he's been telling them over and over and over again, this is going to happen, I'm going to be gone, they still don't get it. And so he spends this time towards the end of his life trying to convince them that everything's going to be okay. Jesus is trying to give them hope. And he teaches them that joy comes after grief. And that joy is something that can't be taken away from us. And he teaches us that joy can only be made perfect through Jesus. We talked last week about the fact that we can have hope because God is with us. That was one of the messages he tried to teach them. is like, you will not be alone. Even though I'm not here, you won't be by yourself. 
He taught them that no matter what storm they were in, no matter how high or how low life feels, that they wouldn't be alone. And last week, we actually started to read a prayer that Jesus prayed for his 12 disciples. And he prayed that they would always know that God was with them. But that wasn't actually the end of the prayer. We stopped it halfway through. And so that's where we pick up the story today. We're actually going to pick up that prayer that he prayed to God with his disciples in John 17. It starts in verse 20. This is what the second half says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus continues this prayer, but it's no longer just about the 12 disciples. It's a prayer for the people that they will eventually impact. Jesus knows that these disciples will change the world. Jesus knows that, right? He knows that eventually the church will go from 120 to 2.2 billion, and hopefully that number continues to grow. But the reality is with these disciples, they just don't, don't get it. Like, they don't know it. They're not sure. They don't see it. They don't feel that. They know that their life is centered around Jesus and Jesus only. And Jesus is saying, like, you will be impacted. So when Jesus prays this, he's praying for those people that they'll eventually impact. Jesus is praying for the people who will learn about grace and truth. Jesus is praying about the people who will hear about hope. Jesus is praying for the people who will hear about forgiveness. Because of this group of people, the fishermen, the tax collector, the zealot, they're ordinary people that God used to tell the world that hope is real. And the power of Jesus' prayer is that his disciples are called to communicate the saving message to the world, that Jesus came, that he died, that he resurrected from the dead, and that he's here to forgive us and give us salvation. And that the good news of Jesus and that the Son of God was not intended to be held exclusively to that group of people. That's why Jesus prays this, because he recognizes it's not just for you 12, it's not just for the 120, it's for the entire world. As Jesus addresses his disciples before he died, he doesn't just talk about the fact that there's hope because joy can come after grief. He doesn't just talk about the fact that there's hope because he's with us. He talks about the fact that we can have hope because of the work of his followers. And Jesus knows that there's hope because his disciples will see him die on a cross, and they'll see him buried, and they'll see him resurrect from the dead. And these disciples will know that he is the son of God, that every promise that he made is true, that everything in the Old Testament that pointed to him is real, and that he's capable of forgiving us. And Jesus knows that there's hope in the world because the good news that Jesus is the son of God and that we can be forgiven and we can be made new will not be kept a secret. Jesus recognizes that. And he knows that these 12 are the people that will take it to the rest of the world. And today, even though the context is different, even though the story is different, It still feels pretty similar because of how many people are here. And today, the same hope can be seen through those who follow him. Because Jesus teaches us that followers of Jesus are called to bring hope. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That's terrifying. I really love the idea that hope comes straight from Jesus. Like, I love that. I love when it's just a Jesus thing. But when Jesus starts including people in this, I get less hopeful. Because if I'm being honest, there are a lot of people who follow Jesus and do a really poor job of talking about or sharing or living out a life that shows what hope looks like. Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so the reality is Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, this is your job. Like, this is your calling. This is what I told you to do. You're called to bring hope to the rest of the world. But the reality is sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And a lot of times when it comes to people who follow Jesus, hope is not the thing that they talk about. They talk about legalism and rules. 
And today I know a lot of us feel that tension and we've experienced it that Christians and the church often do a poor job of showing people what hope in Jesus looks like. One of the best books I've ever read in regards to the church in general is a book called Essential Church. And I would say if you have teenagers or kids that are going to become teenagers, you need to buy this book and read it. This book is based off of a study by a guy named Tom Rainer in regard to 18 to 22-year-olds and their mass exodus from the church. Right now, two-thirds of 18 to 22-year-olds who were once going to church no longer go to church anymore. And that number continues to rise. And so when Tom Rainer learned this, he started to figure out, like, okay, like, the church is, when it comes at 18 and 22 range, the church is slowly dying. He decided to figure out, why is that happening? And so he started to do some research, not just numbers, but figure out, okay, ask these people, ask the 18 and 22-year-olds, why are you walking away from God? And here's what he found out. He said, most of the young adults who stopped going to church stopped going because they wanted a break or they moved to college, or work got in the way, or they didn't feel connected. But the biggest reason why 18 to 22-year-olds walk away from the church is because they don't think that it's essential to their lives. Tom Rainer wrote, unless a dramatic change occurs, the American church will continue down the same path as the European church, which is all but dead. And I remember reading this a few years ago, and this absolutely wrecked me. This wrecked me because somewhere along the line, the American church has stopped showing our 18 to 22-year-olds what hope looks like. Which means at some point, the church in general, so it's not just about 18 to 22-year-olds, the church in general has stopped showing people what hope in Jesus looks like. They stopped showing people what is essential. Because I don't know about you, but hope is essential to my life. Like, I need that. I crave that. It's the thing that gets me out of the bed in the morning. And at some point followers of Jesus and the church has done a really poor job of showing these people that hope is real because hope is essential. And if they don't think the church is essential, they haven't heard about hope. And it's not just hope, it's peace and grace and forgiveness and a ton of other things that Jesus and the church are supposed to exemplify. So if students don't think the church is essential, the church and its followers are doing a really poor job of showing people that there's grace and that there's peace, and that there's hope. Because I know for me, if I didn't have that hope, I have no idea what I'd be doing right now. And being completely honest, I have no idea if I'd be up here right now if I didn't have hope in Jesus. And to me, that's essential. That's an essential thing to my life. And that doesn't mean there won't be storms, or pain, or brokenness. But what it means is that followers of Jesus are supposed to live and communicate in a way that people know that there's hope. And that there's hope because the storm that they're going through is only temporary. And that there's hope found in Jesus, not our job, not our salary, not even our marriage. It's the church's job and followers of Jesus' job to show people that God is for them, that God loves them, that God wants nothing more than to offer you grace and forgiveness, to see you choose to follow him and to experience the hope and peace and love and purpose that he offers. The study concluded that the best place for teenagers to be is surrounded by adults following Jesus. Because at some point, the reality is we will hit a storm. We all know that. 
But the best place for them to be is surrounded by a community of people who will walk alongside them and show them what faith looks like, show them what hope looks like, and teach them that there's hope because grief can turn to joy, and teach them that God is with them. That's why for us, middle schoolers and high schoolers will always be a part of main service. We will never create a youth church that meets during this time. We'll never do it. Because we know that teenagers need to be in church surrounded by adults who follow Jesus. Taking a step further, the study also found that students who serve on Sundays have a better chance of sticking with the church as they get older. And so for this church, our hope is that for our teenagers, that they can worship and serve in the same way as adults do. And that they can worship and serve right next to people who can tell them, I'm sorry that you're in this storm, but there is hope. I'm sorry that you feel that way, but there is peace. I'm sorry that you feel that way, but there is grace. And our hope is that with our teenagers, and hopefully our young adults, and hopefully for everybody in here, is that we're a church where that hope rubs off on each other. Jesus continued the prayer, Luke 17, starting in verse 21. This is what he said. That all of them, again, talking about the people who follow him, so that all of him, them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, and they, be one, they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In this prayer, the only thing that Jesus talks about to show other people what hope and faith looks like is unity. It's one of the things that he talks about in a long time of teaching, but in this specific prayer, he's saying that unity is one of the ways that Jesus' followers bring hope into this world. Because the divided and hostile world desperately needs the unifying power of the good news and love of Jesus. And unity is one of the ways that the world, know, the world knows that Jesus was sent by God. And he talks about two different types of unity. He talks about unity with God. And this is oneness with God. And this comes from putting your faith in Jesus, letting him lead every aspect of your life and, and taking that tangible step of baptism. It doesn't just come from believing that he exists. There isn't oneness with God just from believing that there might be a God. But oneness from God comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that the last few weeks. Jesus eventually ascends into heaven and he leaves this gift with his people to let them know, hey, I'm still here. Even though you can't see me, even though I'm not in the flesh, you can still experience me. And that Holy Spirit is this gift, and it's God in us. And what we talked about the last few weeks is Jesus tells us that's how our joy is made complete. That's how we know he won't leave us. And that's one of the reasons why we celebrate baptism here. Baptism literally means to be immersed in water. It's the death of your old self and the raising up of your new self. Peter, who was Jesus' closest disciple and, and probably his best friend, is the one who taught us that. He, he told this group of people, after that 120 decided not just to hold it to themselves, and he went out to go. They taught everybody that they could. They asked, what do we do? If hope is real, if grace is real, if peace is real, what do we do? And Peter's response was to repent, which means to turn away and to be baptized. <laughs> And that's something that we celebrate here. And last week, every week, it just keeps getting better. Last week, we said we had three people getting baptized on Easter. And during the week, we had another conversation. There's four people that are making that decision. On Easter, we're celebrating that. Just as a side note, I don't think there's a better day to celebrate the resurrection of a new self than Easter. But for those people, that oneness with God comes from making him the leader, from making him the most important, the savior, the person that, will, will, will choose, that, that chooses you and that loves you and offers that grace. 
The second thing he talks about inside that unity is unity with each other. Because the result of unity with God is that there's unity amongst the people. And this oneness of community of believers proclaims to the world that God is for them. Because when the world sees the church in harmony, they see it in harmony with God and with each other, the love of Jesus is seen. And so when Jesus prays, he's saying, listen, like one of the ways that you can tell everybody that I am real and that this is good is through unity, which is not something that we experience a ton in our day. Jesus continued, Father, I want those you have given, given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Do you ever wonder Jesus' desire for your life? This sums it up. His desire is that you are one with him. His desire is that you spend eternity with him. His desire is not that you feel empty or lonely or lost or broken. His desire is that you're made new. His, his desire is that you have hope. Jesus finishes the prayer. This is what he says. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus concludes this prayer. He wraps it up, praying that the world knows him. And praying that the world knows him, not so that they can quote scripture, not so that they know a bunch of rules, not so that they can be perfect. He prays that they know him because he wants them to know how much he loves them. He wants us to experience the same love that God has for his own son. And through his followers and through his church, that can be made known. In the early 1800s, in Cohasset, Massachusetts, a group of people started to realize that their seaport town had major problems. On multiple occasions, large ships coming into port had run aground because of the fog and the darkness and the stormy seas. As the ships began to capsize, sailors would attempt to swim their way to shore, but sadly most of them would drown seeking safety. After another shipwreck and more lives lost, the people of Coasset decided that the only way the next set of sailors would survive a shipwreck is if that they did something about it. The ships that would hit rocky shores weren't, were, far, were too far out for, the, for big ships to go. And so what these people realized is that the only way they could do that was to use their own small boats. So a group of people banded together to save any of the people that they could that had run aground. And they built what is called a life-saving station. Stocked with volunteers, equipped with their own boats and their own gear. This was not a government thing. Patrolmen would, t would take turns walking up and down the shoreline looking for shipwrecks during storms and fog. And the moment a ship started to capsize, they would rush to the station, put on their gear, take out their own boat into the often treacherous waters, and rescue as many people as they could. After multiple successful missions, cities up and down the coast started to build their own life-saving stations because they knew that these were the only solution to saving the shipwrecked crews from drowning. And so for the next 50 years, residents in seaport towns up and down the coast risked their own lives in order to save the people that were drowning. But after 50 years, things started to change. Somewhere along the line, less and less people began to step up to volunteer. 
Multiple life-saving stations had suffered devastating losses as whole crews of volunteers had died while attempting to save other people. And so because of this, people started to volunteer less. They started to give less. They started to use less of their gear. Eventually, these life-saving stations started to be, to be built with lounges and places for volunteers to hang out. Then they actually started to build towers on top so that people didn't actually have to go outside. They could watch from the glass and see what was going on. And eventually, these life-saving stations became more of a social club where people would talk about boats instead of using them to save others. By the mid-1950s, only a few life-saving stations still remained. And now, most of them are historical landmarks without a purpose. And today, only a few actually exist. Somewhere along the line, life-saving stations lost track of why they existed. The volunteers lost track of why they were risking, track of why they were risking their lives. Because they valued safety and social life over selflessness and saving lives. And lost sight of that ultimate calling and purpose. I don't know about you, but this sounds familiar to me. An organization that was created to give life and bring hope to people who were lost, but over time lost sight of why they existed and became more of a historical site that you ooh and all over instead of a place where you receive hope. When the church loses sight of the reason why it exists, it stops saving lives and starts being a club. More importantly, when the church loses sight of the fact that the reason why it exists is because Jesus resurrected from the dead and those people saw it and those people decided to take that message of love to the ends of the world, we lose sight of the fact that hope is real. That this church comes from God. And that hope can be seen through all the people who follow him. So here's the deal. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to bring hope into this world. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect. This doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. It doesn't even mean that you can't have storms in your own life, because you will. It means that when the people around you are desperate for hope, you don't sit behind the glass and watch them drown. You get out in your boat, and you pull those people out of the storm, and you point them toward the grace and truth and hope that Jesus offers. If you're here, and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you turned away from God at some point in your life, let me start by saying that we're just so glad that you're here today. I know I'm biased, but I don't think there's a better place to be on a Sunday morning than here in this church. But if you're struggling to find hope, and the storms in your life are trying to take you down, know that God is for you, that he loves you, that his desire is to be with you, not for you to go through that pain. And know that you can have hope, and know that this church and this group of people are here for you. Because we want to be a community that's reaching out to pull you out of that water. And we'll do everything we can to show you that hope is real through Jesus. Because when Jesus prayed that prayer, it wasn't just words. It wasn't just something he wanted, to, wanted his disciples to hear, but wanted them to do. That's why we do this. That's why we have community. That's why we do everything we can as a church and as a group of people to bring hope. Because it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, hope is real. It's there. But it's another for us to be a group of people who actively pursue showing other people what that looks like. Let's pray. God, thank you for hope. God, I know that, um, that there are a lot of us who feel like we're drowning. God, we feel like we're drowning 
because of our jobs or we feel like we're drowning because of debt. We feel like we're drowning because of loneliness or relationships or whatever maybe you got. And I just pray um, today as a group we can take a step closer toward you and, and, and toward hope. God, we're so thankful that hope is something that you offer. But God, I just pray that as a church and as a group of people that, that we can step up and bring hope to this world. That for the people here that, that aren't sure about you, that are skeptical, that are doubtful, to be honest, that don't even believe that you're real, God, that, that, that the people who do can show them what hope looks like. God, that as a church, it doesn't become a club or a social place, but a place where people know that if I'm drowning, if this storm is wrecking me, those people are here to help. God, thank you for doing that in our own lives. Thank you for offering that to all of us. God, I pray that this week we can t- take a step closer to hope and the love that you offer. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.